I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 74 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is Jennifer Egan, a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist whose work manages to be innovative, fiercely intelligent, emotionally potent, and a lot of fun. She won the Pulitzer for A Visit from the Goon Squad, which came out in 2010 and interweaves 13 stories told from different perspectives in different styles and different time frames. Much of it revolves around characters in the music industry, with one brilliant chapter told as a PowerPoint presentation that explores pauses in songs, including The Police's Roxanne and The Zombie's Time of the Season. Her latest novel, The Candy House, came out in paperback this week. It's not technically a sequel to A Visit from the Goon Squad in that it's not showing you what happens next so much as it's swirling around in the same universe. But The Candy House does go deeper into many of the Goon Squad characters and ideas. In Goon Squad, a black tech entrepreneur named Bix basically predicts the impact of the internet. In The Candy House, he has taken the concept of social media to a logical extreme through a revolutionary shared memory technology called Own Your Unconscious. Egan again takes a unique narrative approach to each linked story, telling one through emails and texts and another, which chronicles a heroine spy adventure as a series of terse instructions delivered in second person. That story initially appeared on Twitter during its 140 character days. The Candy House landed on Barack Obama's list of his favorite books of 2022. How did Egan feel about that honor compared to, say, winning the Pulitzer? Jennifer Egan grew up in Chicago, then San Francisco, and those cities have factored into her work. She graduated from the University of Pennsylvania a year before I did, though we didn't know each other there. And she worked various jobs in New York City before the publication of her short story collection, Emerald City, and her first novel, 1994's The Invisible Circus. In the latter, a teenage girl travels to Europe seeking signs of her late sister. Look at Me, which followed in 2001, is an ambitious novel that explores image, identity, and technology through two women named Charlotte. One, a model who becomes unrecognizable after a car crash and plastic surgery. The Keep from 2006 is a gothic tale involving two boyhood friends with a troublesome backstory who work to transform an old European castle into a resort. Manhattan Beach, which came between Goon Squad and the Candy House, found Egan delivering richly detailed historical fiction set in 1930s and 40s New York. It involves gangsters, a missing father, and a young woman working in a navy yard and becoming a diving pioneer. Befitting Egan's work, our conversation covers a lot of ground. Does she begin a novel with an idea, characters, a plot, or a storytelling strategy? Does she set aside a certain amount of time to do research before putting pen to paper? And yes, she writes in longhand. How much does where one lives affect what one writes? Does it matter to her whether someone reads her work on paper or a screen or listens to it? Does she read her reviews and has she ever learned anything useful from them? Does she expect someone who reads The Candy House to get all the references to characters and events from Goon Squad? Was she a music nerd before she wrote Goon Squad? Did the title of Goon Squad have anything to do with the Elvis Costello song? Egan also tells a great story about how David Bowie reacted to that book's commentary about the pause in Young Americans. She explains the workings of her weekly writers group, and she has a passionate argument for why every college student should become an English major. She's one of the most intellectually stimulating writers and conversationalists around. Please enjoy Jennifer Egan on Carol Pop.
Well, thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate talking to you. My pleasure. The only one I hadn't read and I'm in the middle of now is uh, The Invisible Circus. So I'm mm. uh, I'm catching up on that. So. <laughs> My first. Do you revisit things that you've written in the past? And if so, how do you feel about them? I don't because I mean, I, I stand by all of them, but I don't reread them because why would I, you know, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's a recipe for trouble. Um yeah, no, I, I I, mean, I, I'm always trying to move on and get better. I know there are a lot of themes that run through all of them, but I don't need to reread them to know that <laughs> they're sort of in me. It's like personal history almost. I, I don't really right. need to. Um, I, it's all there <laughs> always. Yeah. And someone sort of like going back to watch their old movies takes or, you know, read your old newspaper articles for that point takes less time than going back to reread a whole novel. So you got to yeah, find yourself I, I into feel- it. I just don't feel a, a real um, inclination to reread my own work. Um, that may just be me, you know. Um, and and sometimes I have to for various reasons. Um, and I and it's it's nice if I can feel good about it. But I guess I just feel like no matter how I feel about it, it's it's problematic. I mean, if I think it's great, then there's a feeling like, ooh, have I matched that? You know, it was I better before. <laughs> and if it feels crappy, it's like, oh, my God, that's out in the world and I don't feel good about it. So I guess I I try I don't there's not a lot of payoff for me in doing that. And I try really hard to think about what the result is going to be before I before I take in information of any kind. Like another example is I have a very firm rule that I never look at my Amazon pages. I don't look at rankings. Mm. I don't look at um, customer reviews because there's nothing I can do about them. And it's just a recipe for being upset, honestly. Um, So I try to really control that stuff and ask myself, why am I looking at this? Um, Do, Do you read regular reviews? Not carefully. No. I mean, I'll sort of glance. If it's a really bad one, I won't even look at it. Um, there were a couple of those for Candy House. Um, if if you know, if I want to sort of get the gist and I know it's mixed to positive, I'll sort of glance at it. But it's not even skimming exactly. It's it's a little more cursory than that. Um, yeah, again, like I just don't, you know, I I have I get tons of feedback on my work. So it's not like reviews are my first chance to find out what the world thinks. You know, I have a writing group that I dedicated the candy house to. I have layers and layers of readers. So I have considered most of what can be said (laughs) about a book. And if I haven't managed to fix it, you know, fair enough. But, um, Again, the question is why? Why read words, especially when, you know, it's a really mean review, as sometimes people will warn me. You know, I don't if someone handed me a cup of poisonous liquid on the street, I wouldn't just drink (laughs) it. (laughs) And to me, that's very similar to what a kind of mean spirited or ad hominem review is. All of that said, I have no, you know, review the job of a, of a reviewer is to review the book. That's great. But the audience is not me. The audience is their readers. So why am I making myself the audience? In other words, I'm not taking issue with book reviews. I believe in it. And I think if a book makes someone angry, you know, in a way, 
that's a compliment. Like if it doesn't matter enough to get mad about this stuff, then maybe it doesn't matter at all. And I think it does matter. But once again, the question is, why am I reading it? So I, I try to ask that question before I take in words that might reverberate through my head in a pointless way. Have you ever gotten anything useful out of a review or something stuck in your head? And then the next time you went out to write, you thought, oh, that was like a good note. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, I get lots and lots and lots of feedback, but I'm not looking to reviews for feedback because remember that a review is also performative. A review is a reviewer has a different job than someone who's just trying to help me make my book better. <laughs> a review is entertainment on some level. So right. it, it, that's not because of that, that other goal, which is perfectly worthy. I write book reviews too. I do not look to reviews for feedback on my work. No. Dwight Garner in the New York Times wrote a wonderful review of the candy house. And he just, he had a, he had a sentence that I just enjoyed so much. And I thought, well, this would be a fun one. Uh, where he said, Egan has a zonking sense of control. And I just thought I've never used the word zonking in my life and I, I like it. Well, I love his reviews generally because um, he just has such a great sense of language. Like I love reading his reviews of other books. Um, yeah, I was really thrilled that he um, that he liked the book. And I again, I didn't read it carefully, but I glanced over it and, and got the gist and was very was thrilled because there are certain reviewers whom I really, really respect um, and so their, their opinion means a lot to me, but you know, Ron Charles is another one of those reviewers. And I know that his review of the candy house was not very positive. So I didn't read it carefully because that was the Washington post one. Right? Yeah. I yeah, mean, I again, that. I, I really do respect him a lot. I think he's great. And he's, he's reviewed other books of mine positively, whatever he's doing his job. I have no beef with him. And in a way that's exactly why I don't want to get caught in the weeds of reading words that I might disagree with or think, right. Oh, but you misunderstood. Like, and then I'm, I'm pissed at Ron Charles. What's the point? He's doing his job. I'm doing my job. We're all doing our jobs. <laughs> there you go. Well, and it's interesting, just like the number of voices you want in your head to, you know, as you're trying to be creative and like, sometimes it's helpful to have some, and especially if they're trusted people who are in your writer's group, but if you let in everyone all the time, I mean, that's sort of one of the things we face in life generally, and that, that there's so we're sort of open to so much more feedback all the time from everyone. And it could just sort of make you paralyzed, which is part of, you know, what you've explored, you know, in the book, just this idea that everyone has access to you and your thoughts and in the candy house, you know, actually making your unconscious part of the collective, you know, which that doesn't exist, but, you know, Twitter does and social media does. And, you know, everyone's kind of open to so much more feedback than maybe is good for them. I agree totally. I mean, again, I, I probably take in more feedback on my work along the way than most other writers I know. There's, I will listen to anyone who has read carefully and has an opinion. Um, but the distinction I'm drawing is that the job of, of a reviewer is different. And there's Absolutely. no, I can't do anything about it at that point. The book is done. To your other point, I agree totally. You know, we, we are inundated with so much information and there's a feeling almost of obligation sometimes like, oh, well, this is going on. I have to know about it. And I think it leads to a huge amount of distortion. This is something I really think about. You know, 
um, it feels sometimes like things have never been worse. Like, oh my God, you know, the world is, is a disaster. Mm-hmm. And I find myself really pushing back against that. Not that there aren't huge problems, but to me, the thing that's really different is how constantly aware of them we are. I mean, no one is going to convince me the world is in worse shape now than during the Holocaust. (laughs) I'm sorry. There's no comparison. So the fact that anyone could even think that to me is a measure of how much distortion our inundation of of um, information is causing in our minds. Something has changed. And that is the amount that we know. And you're right. That is very much what the candy house is about on some level, which is we we have access to a huge quantity of information. What does that really mean? And how much does it really tell us? Right. And that's one of the questions that I went into the book with. You know, what is the relationship between data and storytelling? And in a way, the answer that I ended up finding as I wrote the book is that data is useless without storytelling. Data is nothing because storytelling is where that data becomes part of a narrative that can actually guide us. <laughs> you know, for example, you know, why did we not know that 9-11 was about to happen? The information was all there, but it was not being received uh, privileged and interpreted in ways that allowed us, us, you know, whoever could actually have stopped it to be able to do that. Um, so that was data that in a sense was useless. I mean, finding out in retrospect that we knew it all, what does that get us? Um, it's the narrative part, the storytelling part that activates data that actually makes it worthwhile. And that, that was really interesting to me. Um, even though the conversation we're having right now doesn't really sound like a novel, you know, the way that this all plays out is just in people's lives with their concerns and loves and worries. And that's what I ended up looking at in the book, of course. Right. So the candy house is, it's not a sequel to a visit from the goon squad because it's not, you know, taking place afterwards. It's just sort of spinning off in this polyphonic way that's, you know, that goon squad had an approach and this is sort of, going in similar but but different ways at the same time um so it's kind of in the the goon squad egan universe like the mcu and then the egan universe um but when when you had the idea to write this book was it driven by thinking about wanting to take these characters to new places or was it driven by sort of the ideas that we're talking about and thinking i want to do a book that kind of captures what's happened in culture and technology since Goon Squad and approach at that in new sort of innovative ways. Totally curiosity about people. And the curiosity happened for a number of different reasons. Sometimes it was because when I wrote about someone in Goon Squad, I ended up having a sense of their future that I wanted to share with the reader. So one example is there's a character in Goon Squad called Bix Bouton. We meet him right. very briefly and he basically predicts it, it, we meet him in 1993 and he is present with two guys. They've all partied all night. They're on ecstasy. And um, he's about to say goodbye to these two guys. And before he does that, he kind of predicts the impact of social media. He says, everyone we've lost will find or they'll find us. And as soon as I wrote that, I thought, ah, I think Bix invents social media. 
So that was sort of an interesting thought, partly because he's African-American and there were not a ton of African-American people in tech at that point. Um, so all of that was interesting. And also, I just thought, wow, so this is like an alternate reality where Bix does that instead of all the people who we know actually did it. Um, so that created curiosity about him and a wish to revisit him. Another reason I was curious about people sometimes was that I had chapters that failed that I couldn't include in Goon Squad that involved characters who I therefore never was able to even share with the reader. <laughs> so, for example, there are three guys, three brothers who are really important in the candy house, Miles Ames and Alfred Hollander. Right. We hear of them in Goon Squad, but we never even meet them. But I actually had a chapter in which I wrote about them, but it didn't work. So the reader never meets them, but I had met them. <laughs> so I felt like, oh, I want to bring Miles Ames and Alfred to the reader. Um, and then sometimes it was because there was a character who seemed very opaque and kind of unknowable in Goon Squad, like Lulu, um, who is kind of a just someone we a minor character we see a couple of times in Goon Squad. She has a kind of a bright, shiny surface, but there's no sense of what's behind it. And that is always an invitation to me, um, because one of the things that the Candy House is really about is the unknowability of other people to each of us and there and also our own unknowability and solitude, really, um, with our own consciousnesses. So um, when I when I have a sense of someone who's very opaque, I want to penetrate that opacity and see the world through their eyes. So. There were just a lot of different invitations and areas of curiosity that I wanted to explore. So was there a moment when you thought, oh, this is my next novel, as opposed to, you know, oh, I have these things kind of cooking in my head and maybe it would be nice to write something more about this character, or this idea? I was already working on one chapter of the Candy House on my book tour for a visit from the Goon Squad. So I, I never really stopped. From 2010 to 2013, I wrote about four chapters that ended up in very different forms in the candy house. Um, so there was already material kind of accruing. I tend to write in a very improvisational way with my first drafts with no real plan or outline. And with one exception, I didn't even type up this material. So it was just sitting there on legal pads. Then I got very caught up in working on my novel, Manhattan Beach. And in 2016, I took this material back out and typed it up and read it. And I felt that it was I knew that there was merit in it. The question to me was, can I turn this into a book that is its own thing, that is not just fan fiction of my own book <laughs> that really has its own identity and that is actually, at least to my mind, better than Goon Squad, because I knew that if, you know, with a book that was lucky enough to be really beloved as Goon Squad was, if it if it wasn't better, it would be perceived as a lot worse. Um, so I didn't know if I would be able to meet all of those criteria and I would have been perfectly fine with not publishing another book, but just, you know, publishing these as occasional short stories related to Goon Squad. But I began to feel that there really was a center of gravity that had a, a real organic quality to it for Candy House. And that's why I 
ended up publishing it as a book. And mind you, there are plenty of people who do not think it is better than Goon Squad. But on some level, I'm just trying to meet my own standards, even though I do bring in lots of other readers, as I said, you know, in the end. Um, I, I, I have a subjective point of view and I just have to, you know, feel good about what I'm doing, release it to the world and move on. Yeah. I mean, nobody's going to put them in a cage match against each other and, you know, have them start tearing their limbs off of each other. Was, was black box, by the way, that was the, the story that you'd originally tweeted and then had gone on the New Yorker website. And then that appears in candy house. Was that always intended for this book or was that something that you realized worked with everything else? That was the first one that I wrote. Um, That was the one that I started working on on my book tour for Goon Squad. Um, I I think I knew that if I published another book that was related to Goon Squad, that chapter would absolutely be part of it. Mm -hmm. But in a way that set the bar pretty high because that chapter is so culture is so structurally strange and and so extreme in a way it's written in these very small structural units um of 140 characters because right, right, I was... the new yorker tweeted it but twitter now is paragraphs twitter then was sentences um so the question for me was first of all what kind of book can house this bizarre piece of writing and then no so that was number one and number two which was even harder was you know, Black Box, which is now called Lulu the Spy, is a kind of genre. It's a genre story. It's 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 a spy genre story about a woman who's working for the government, trying to infiltrate a group of plotters against America. And the thing that's really fun about genre, which I use again and again, um, is that it lets you kind of guide the reader's focus onto certain things that are fun without having to reckon with more problematic things. So I'll give you an example. In a murder mystery, we do not spend a lot of time on grieving. (laughs) I mean, death is terrible. It brings great pain, but that's not what murder mysteries are about. The genre lets the writer guide the reader away from these painful things into something Mm. that's a lot more fun, which is trying to figure out who did it. So in the case of a spy story or this one in particular, Lulu is narrating her spy mission and it's, you know, it's kind of fun because spy missions are fun. What we what we see but don't really have to reckon with is that she is experiencing great brutality in the course of this. She's shot. She's raped. It's a nightmare. So I knew that the the gravitas of that is present in the story, but we don't really reckon with it. And I knew that if I was going to include that chapter in a book, I would have to reckon with the aftermath of all that happens to Lulu outside of the spy genre. Right. And that was probably the hardest thing to do in the candy house, because I had all kinds of ideas that seemed great, which is but they weren't great <laughs> when I tried to actually execute them. They sucked. And it's it really is a testament to how ideas that I have sitting in a chair are not good enough. I need to come up with ideas in a more spontaneous improvisational way, those ideas are better. So the ideas that I had sitting in a chair were, okay, Lulu's been through terrible trauma. It's going to be really hard. She's going to, it's, she's going to suffer terribly. 
and we need to see that. So I, I was working on chapters that were really morose and and dark and painful, and they just weren't fun at all. Um, and and more importantly, they didn't they just weren't compelling, like they didn't work. And it turned out that the the method that I the chapter that I ultimately came up with is actually very funny. And it's a very um, kind of it's an epistolary chapter. So it's all email and it's right. a very um, there are lots and lots of characters in the chapter. It's a it's a kind of ensemble chapter. So that is very different from what I was thinking I would have to do with Lulu. And yet that chapter does reckon very overtly with the trauma she experienced in the spy chapter. Right. And those are the two chapters that are the most not conventionally narrative told chapters. What was your impulse, by the way, to just tell that original story in these 140 character sentences as opposed to using paragraphs? I can't even imagine how I would write that chapter in paragraphs. I mean, there's no there's no first person narrator in the chapter. Right. How, how would I do it? I mean, there's no it's a series of bullets. It, it, the, the original title of the chapter was Lessons Learned, and the chapter is narrated in the form of what Lulu has learned from each step she's taken rather than telling us what she actually did. <laughs> so, I mean, how would you even write that in a, in a paragraph way? I, I can't even imagine it. I, I find that structures only work if I have found a story that can't be told any other way. So it's not like I think, here's the story I'm going to tell. Gee, what kind of structure should I use? That doesn't work. Sometimes I start with the structure and wait for a story to fill it, because that is actually a more um, that that has a greater chance of success than somehow trying to squeeze a, a, a chapter that could be narrated in a more straightforward way into a structure that is more extreme. And, you know, here's here's an example of what I mean. There's another chapter that's narrated in first person plural. So it's all right. told as we it's a collective narrator Two, it's two sisters narrating as one. I knew I wanted to use first person plural because it's you find it very rarely in fiction. It has been done um, well in, in a number of cases, but it's unusual. And I, I really struggled to find the right collective narrator. And I, I tried a few different ones that didn't work. But that the reason they didn't work was that it, there was no reason for them to be telling the story as one unit. When I finally landed on Lana and Melora, who are the two sisters who narrate this chapter as one, there are all kinds of reasons that they are a unit, that their point of view is is one for a certain time in their lives. Um, and so that's why it I was finally able to actually write the chapter when I landed on those two as my narrating pair. Is it important to you to innovate when you're writing? Like, do you look for opportunities to, you know, stretch the boundaries of what people expect? I look for opportunities to use different narrative forms because I know that if I can use them, I will be telling stories I could never have told otherwise. So I'm a little bit turning your question around just to say, you know, because it only works if I've found something that can't be done any other way, if I can make unusual 
uh, narrative genres work, I am guaranteeing that I'm telling stories I couldn't have told otherwise. So, yes. And the other thing is, you know, the novel, the earliest novels were very flexible and strange and what we would call postmodern. So I tend to think that actually we underestimate the the degree to which the novel was invented to be strange, to take chances, to do things that epic poetry, which was the predominant storytelling form before the novel came along, that epic poetry couldn't do. So to me, for pushing the novel and trying to find ways to bend all kinds of different forms of discourse to fiction feels actually very traditional to me, but it's reaching back to, you know, the 18th and early 19th centuries and actually through the 19th century. We tend to think of 19th century fiction as quote unquote conventional, but people who read it regularly are less likely to say that the novel was a really big, swaggering, flexible form in the 19th century. And it had a lot of the qualities that we look to television for now because novels were usually serialized, um, especially in the second half of the 19th century. So I just feel like the, the novel can take it. That's what it was built to do. And I like to use it to its fullest capacity. Part of your approach is that that one, I think you view time in a way that's different from a lot of people where it's just like, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And with you, there's a sense of, you know, going backwards and forwards and sort of looking at, you know, that your last chapter starts in like 1991 before cell phones and everything else. And there's a resonance to your description of Ames at the at the plate about, you know, in his in his baseball game um, and what sort of it felt like at that point. And then you're able to flash forward and just treat time in a different way because you can. And the other element of it is that it's fun. And and that there's sort of a joy, I feel like, in your explore, explorations, like, yeah, why not just sort of try this? It's more fun to read, even if you're exploring, you know, serious traumatic events. Time is a, is a kind of fascinating quality to think about in fiction, because you could argue that it all fiction is about time passing on some level. Time always has to pass for fiction to happen, if you think about it, as opposed to something like poetry. So the question is, and, and narrative is always moving forward. Like if I read a sentence, I'm going in one direction. So I find myself wondering how I can push back against that. And one reason I loved using PowerPoint, for example, in a visit from the Goon Squad is that I could... I could put several different um, utterances on one slide and the reader could read them in any order. I couldn't control the order in which they were written, which sort of upends the basic fact about chronology that is true of all narrative, which is we do tend to read forward. So. But and and with a visit from the Goon Squad, I actually thought that the chapters would be in a chronological order. I thought they would go backwards, which, again, is that has been done before very well in fiction. Um, Charles Baxter wrote a beautiful book called First Light that goes backwards. Um, but it isn't done that much. And I thought that would be really cool. When I read the chapters in that order, I made an unpleasant discovery. It was not cool. It was boring. It didn't work. 
So I had to restructure around the principle of curiosity rather than chronology. In other words, what is the most fun thing for the reader to discover having just read the chapter that they've read? That was how I ended up structuring the book with um, the Candy House. I use although it's a very different book, I use I use three of the same structural principles that I used in Goon Squad. And those are each chapter is about a different person. Each chapter is uh, stands completely on its own. It does not need any context to be to work as a kind of machine, if you will. And each chapter has its own technical approach. So you could almost you could imagine a book written in all these different ways. And yet these different approaches combine into one story. The chronology aspect, I if I had thought it would work, I would I would have put the candy house in chronological order. The only reason not to do that is that it works better a different way. And the reason that I think it works better a different way is exactly for the same reason that it did in Goon Squad. These are books that are structured around curiosity. Namely, we see something out of the corner of our eye and we want to we want to know it better. And I plunge the reader into the middle of it in the next chapter. If I wait until chronologically that chapter, you know, falls, comes into play Sometimes it's too late for that curi- that fulfillment of curiosity to really work. So it just depends what kind of book I'm writing. My novel Manhattan Beach is is pretty much chronological because right. that was a story that benefited from being told chronologically. But these these piecemeal kaleidoscopic books tend to work better um, if I employ different principles and and let go of chronology. When you're writing this, and obviously you're referring to a lot of characters who were in Visit from the Goon Squad, um, do you expect readers to have read Goon Squad? And how do you balance how much information to give in this book so they'll know enough that if they haven't read the other novel, they still are up to speed as opposed to, you know, saying, nah, you know, you'd still be better off if you go pull the other book out and see what Bix was doing in that one. There's no need to read Goon Squad whatsoever. And I actually think they would probably work better starting with Candy House and then reading Goon Squad. Again, there's no chronology in these books. The the earliest material in both books is in Candy House. So if chronology matters, especially if chronology matters, start with Candy House. There's no backstory. I mean, again, that's That's one of the principles that I use in writing these books. Not only do you not need to have read Goon Squad to read Candy House, you don't need to have read any other chapter in Candy House to enjoy any single chapter in Candy House. And one of the things that I most want people to understand is that I am not expecting the reader to keep track, in quotes, of every single little connection. That's not what it's about. And if it were, I would have provided a cast of characters at the beginning. But the reason I don't do that is that when I open a book and see a cast of characters, I think I'm going to read this later because it sends me the message. My job is to keep track of everyone. I don't want work and I don't want my readers to work. I want them to have fun. So I don't care if you remember a person from here or there. The power of the book doesn't rely on that. And I don't expect you to do it. 
<laughs> I think there's probably an element of reader FOMO where you're such a smart writer with so much going on that you know, when you're reading, you know, Candy House or any of your books, you're like, oh, I want to make sure I get every little thing. And so there can be this sort of, which is again, on the reader. And that just depends on how much you want to, you know, look for so-called Easter eggs or dig into the stuff where you're like, oh, I want to make sure I get every single reference as opposed to, I just want to let this all flow over me. And that's totally up to the reader, how they experience it. It's totally up to the reader. And, um, I, and I, I feel that so strongly and I'm, I'm pained when people tell me, oh, I, I, I liked it, but I, I really had trouble keeping track of everything. And in fact, I'm so pained by that, that I created an annotated version of the candy house that's available on Goodreads. And hmm. I start with a disclaimer in which <laughs> I encourage people not to worry about that stuff. I, I don't know what else I can do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, it, it's the point is for it to be fun. Look, it's true. Some people love looking for Easter eggs and there are some Easter eggs, um, but that you don't. Those are just extra. Those are like the little outtakes that you watch after the movie credits. You know, there I think it's fun to have all those layers present for those who like to look for them. But it's it's, it's not essential in any way. I read it a while ago, but I remember there being like a reference to Charlotte from Look at Me. And I was yeah. like, hey, I read that one. Yay. So Yeah. Or I'll give you another Easter egg. There's a chapter in the Candy House in which we are left wondering what was inside a suitcase. And I've had people say, I really wish you had answered that. And there is an answer. The answer is in the Candy House. We do know what was in the suitcase, but you have to look for it. So you and I were both at Penn. Uh, you were a year ahead of me, and we were both English majors there. How much did that experience, I don't know, set you up for what you're doing in life? I think everyone should be an English major. Um, I really, I, I actually don't mean that flippantly. I can't think of a better way to spend an undergraduate education than to read literature that opens one up to other periods of history, other kinds of thinking teaches you to read and think analytically and encourages strong communication skills, namely reading and writing. <laughs> I just think it was, I cannot think of a better way to spend an undergraduate education. And I, I think that the, there's, there's a little bit of um, bad marketing on the part of the liberal arts. Sometimes I mean, business undergraduate business programs are very good at marketing themselves and persuading students and families that this is a really good use of an undergraduate education because it will lead to good things in life. But what I see out in the world is a is an incredible value placed on reading and writing well. And I I think that that education prepared me tremendously, not just for I mean, I'm, I, you know, writing fiction and and being successful at it takes a lot of luck and nothing can give you that. But, you know, when I first came to New York and I worked as a temp for, you know, a long time before I ended up, you know, before I actually found a job as a kind of private secretary that kept me, um, made me able to pay the rent and also write fiction, I would get offered a job, at a permanent job, at every single place I worked because the minute they found out I could write well, 
Mm. They wanted me to work there. It's just so rare. And by that, by right well, I mean, first of all, grammatically, I mean, obviously with chat GPT, you know, all bets are off. I'm not sure what that is going to mean for all of this, but at least back in the old days, being able to write grammatically, but more than that, and this is where I don't think chat GPT is sufficient, grammatically, but also flexibly with some sense of voice and flair so that the 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 text really popped you know that is a valuable skill and i think underestimated uh in our world and also just the ability to read and think analytically to be able to read deeply these are these are things that are are almost have reached the level of an act of resistance in our current culture um so i i'm a big believer in in the liberal arts generally and reading literature as an undergraduate practice um, specifically. Yeah, I have two college age daughters now, and the older one is an English slash creative writing major. And the younger one is kind of drifting in that direction. And, and there's definitely this kind of sort of sense of, oh, English major, huh? they're going to come live at home, you know, like like that, that that's somehow impractical. I mean, and look, and we went to a school where all the money was going into building these new business school buildings while poor Bennett Hall with the English department was kind of falling apart. So society does send this message about, oh, you know, you already types, but it's true that I know I always talk to people about writing too. I'm like, writing is a, it's sort of a function of thinking, you know, and, and if you could do it clearly, that puts you ahead of a lot of people in a lot of different professions. Absolutely. Well, a couple of things. One is Bennett Hall has been beautifully refurbished. Yes. You may be happy to hear. Um, yes. I have taught at Penn in the English department um, and will be doing so again. Um, and it, it remains an incredibly strong department. Um, but what I would argue is that, you know, you can take a marketing class anywhere, anyhow, um, but finding someone who can guide you through literature that you might find hard to penetrate otherwise and to to teach you how to use it as a prism to discover so much compacted information, first of all, back to sort of data versus storytelling. Um, but also, as you say, encourage a kind of thinking that actually, at least in my case, makes me smarter. I am smarter in writing than I am at any other time. There's no question. <laughs> I know that. Um, so I feel so lucky to have developed a skill that in, that makes me a smarter human being than I would be without it. Does it make a difference to you whether someone reads your work on in a physical paper book as opposed to on a screen or, you know, for that matter, like listening to it? Zero difference. Um, I am an audiobook addict. I think I read three or four times as much as I used to because of audiobooks. Mm. Um, remember that storytelling began as an oral tradition. So, and in my writing group, which I depend on so heavily, we only read aloud. So I was already very attuned to audio. I could not care less how people read as long as they're reading. <laughs> um, I just feel like, look, that's a personal choice. You know, for me, audio is, I would almost say the highest level. In other words, if something is good, but not great, it's very hard for me to listen to it on audio because it. I'm so attuned to the qualities of the language that if there are sort of bad habits or little ticks that the writer has, those will really become intolerable. 
on audio, but I can sort of manage them on the page. Um, I also tend to remember books better if I have listened than mm. if I've only read on on a page. I am not a screen person. So for me, reading on a screen is really unappealing. And there's some I for some reason really seem to depend on that sense of where I am in the book in terms of physically how far I am through it. So for me, reading on a screen only works for things like long transcripts, out of print books that I can't get. You know, I, I use it for sure, but not it's not my preferred choice. But for someone, I mean, there are good arguments for having reading on a screen where you can bring, you know, eight books with you on vacation and decide which one you want to read. Whereas I'm the person who like half my luggage is taken up with a bunch of books. And I think, oh my God, why did I bring all these? There was no way I could possibly have expected to read them. So very personal, couldn't care less. Thank you for reading is my basic feeling. So, so in your writer's group, you're you're reading like the entire book to, you know, your fellow writers, like you're not sending out chapters or manuscripts in in the moment we read aloud and we're just reading a certain number of pages. Um, in the end, I do give the whole book to many people, including people who are not in the writing group. And when I get feedback that way, yes, I send a whole manuscript. But along the way. I will have brought in specific chapters or passages, you know, over the course of years to the writing group. And we only read aloud to each other. There is no homework. There's no sending of texts. Um, we just have the experience altogether. Got it. So since Candy House, I assume you're working on something else. Uh, what are sort of the things that are that you're receiving from, I don't know, the universe that are making you think, OK, this is like the next the next book I got to write? Um, I, that's a hard question to answer. I don't, I often don't really know what, what I'm receiving from the universe until I discover it in the the writing that results. Um, so I don't know if I can answer that. I, I guess what I'll say is that I'm, well, I'm very interested in 19th century New York. I, I, I'm really interested in the period before all of what we think of as modern technology, you know, the phone, uh, film, recorded sound. I'm I'm interested in the period right before that stuff came along. And I'm sort of finding my way through trying to contend with that in fiction. And then I also am really interested in returning to some of the characters from Manhattan Beach, actually. I want to try to follow that narrative forward. And um, I'm kind of exploring the possibility of crime fiction, which is a genre I really love. I've been reading a lot of crime fiction from the 1950s, really for like the last year. That's almost all I've been doing on audio, mm. um, which is really fun. Um, which authors? Well, you know, these are authors who are, a lot of them are out of print now. And for, you know, decent reasons, there's a lot of... Um, they're really sexist, very patriarchal, right. it really verging on misogynistic um, in some cases. But when I put all of that aside, I, there's a lot of interesting storytelling there. So one is Ross McDonald, who is actually that's a pseudonym for a guy named Kenneth Millar. Um, he's written some really good crime fiction. Um, I discovered an amazing this is not from the 1950s at all, but 1870s America there was a writer named Anna Catherine Green, who was a, an inspiration for Agatha Christie, actually. And she wrote some of I think some of the earliest American whodunits. Um, there's they're 
uh, they're wonderful. Um, so I've just been like exploring that genre um, very widely. As far as sort of what I'm responding to in the culture, I, I don't know. I guess what I'm watching right now with with a kind of horror is the degree to which things that, you know, this has happened to me so many times, but things that I thought were kind of satirical and exaggerated seem to be, you know, plausible potentially, um, starting with chat GBT. I mean, I've right. got a chapter in the candy house where Chris Salazar is trying to convert, um, dramatic right. tropes into mathematical equations for some purpose that he doesn't quite understand. This is just what he's doing for the, the tech companies working for, but it seems clear that the goal is to, is to create a way of generating works of art that use these tropes effectively. Well, that's essentially what it turns out chat GPT is, is doing. Um, and that, you know, it's kind of a bummer. I feel like <laughs> I, I didn't even make it a year before that actually happened. Um, but, uh, and then I was just seeing, um, I mean, apparently machines are much better than I even realized at, at converting images from our brains into actual images, which is just horrifying to me. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure yet. I, I guess the answer is I want to, it's time for me to go backward a while. And that's what I did after Goon Squad. I, right. I went backward. I, I spent time in a kind of noirish um, approach to the wartime years in New York. And that was a wonderful tonic and a, and a chance to uh, take my focus away from the culture around me, which is a better, I think, a better way to absorb it than to stare at it hard, at least for me. Do you set aside a certain amount of time where you're going to do research and not write? Or are you writing all along and then also taking time to do research to, you know, go back into wartime or 18th, 19th century New York. It's a little bit of a dialectic because I because I don't write about myself at all or people I know or anything real in my life. I can't I have to do summary if I'm outside of my realm, which I always am. But if I'm outside of my lifetime, let's say I have to do some research just to move forward at all imaginatively, but then that it will still be very crude and so then I'll have to do more research once I have a sense of what the story is. It's because I never know what the story will be. I can't, there's never a point where I can do just one or just the other. So for example, with Manhattan Beach, I did research about, for example, women working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard before while I was working on The Keep, a gothic thriller. So, right. you know, I was I was doing something completely different, but I was already beginning to pay attention to the way women particularly talked about those wartime years and their experiences and certain basic shapes of that book were already becoming clear to me just from that research. And those were one, just what this experience really was of doing work that women had been told all their lives they could not do. <laughs> um, two was the degree to which organized crime, so-called gangsters, really still permeated the culture as a kind of leftover from prohibition, even during the war years. So that 
when you describe someone as a gangster, I mean, if, 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 most of us don't know, quote unquote, gangsters in our daily lives. But that really wasn't true <laughs> in the 30s and 40s. A lot of people of all walks of life did know, quote unquote, gangsters. And that could mean a lot of different things. But that was very interesting to me. Um and then also I, I the the sense of the waterfront as a dominant part of of commercial life and the kind of Irish clannish and racist Irish dominance of the waterfront in certain parts of New York also came through to me. So the way that ethnicity played into some of these professions, all of that, I, I was getting a sense of it before I wrote one word. And so I already, had, you know, I'm Irish American um, on my father's side. You know, grandfather was a Chicago cop uh, and ultimately police commander. Um, so and I didn't I grew up not knowing my father very well. So a, a, the sense of being able to explore his own cultural context was really interesting to me. And so this idea of a woman doing war work, some sort of underworld figure and an Irish American waterfront guy. And those are my three major characters in, in Manhattan Beach. That was all kind of swirling in my mind just from this rather peripatetic research that I did before I ever started. Then once I began writing and there were suddenly very specific things I needed to know, the research was ongoing. Yeah, at some point you had to do a so so-called deep dive into diving, which I learned a lot about. And I was like, oh my God, those suits sound seem so heavy. Like I could feel like I'm flashing back on having read it, which was back when it came out. And I even still have this visceral reaction to those those scenes. Yeah, I mean, I got interested in diving and I didn't even know why. I, I just I saw a diving suit, learned that civilian diving was an important part of shipbuilding and and life at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and in fact it, it, wartime life in New York generally and i it was like a vocation i was i i was transfixed and i didn't even know why i've never even um scuba dived <laughs> i have like no diving experience but i could feel that it was going to be important and in fact in 2009 which was before well before i started writing manhattan beach i was already at a reunion of army divers and i was dressed in that uh mark 5 um diving suit before wow. I had ever put pen to paper working on that book. So you knew that that was going to come in handy. You weren't just sort of doing it just like, hey, this seems fun. I felt that it come in handy. I would say I felt a sense that it would matter. I felt a sense that it would be important. I didn't know how the hell I was going to use it because it was very clear to me that, well, first of all, I knew that no women had dived for the Navy until the 70s. Oh, in the army until the 80s. And the first female army diver was an incredible resource for me. Um, she was a is an amazing woman, um, Andrea Crabtree. Um, so uh, I knew that I couldn't posit a, a female military diver. No way. But as I did more research on civilian diving, I learned that there were no accessible records about who did civilian diving, which is always a very convenient discovery for the fiction writer, because I saw my window of opportunity. No one can prove it didn't happen. So it, it was a 
I, I, it's really a back and forth between research, which generates ideas and possibilities, and then the improvisational writing process that sort of creates action out of those ideas and possibilities, and then focuses the areas of research for me to return to. A lot of Goon Squad and parts of Candy House as well um, are involved with music and the music industry. Um, I mean, that wonderful PowerPoint chapter, it gets it gets into this thing that I'd sort of noticed. And I, I'm always sort of thinking of like other songs that do this, the songs that have the pauses in the middle of the, you know, the, the break. What is it about that world that sort of draws you in? And were you sort of a music nerd before you started doing that? Or was that all in the service of the story? I'm not a music nerd. Um, it was really in the service of the story. The music industry was something I had always been interested in and tried to get assignments um, to work on as a nonfiction writer, but that never really worked out. So I, I was writing one chapter from A Visit from the Goon Squad that involves a music producer, Benny Salazar, Um and to write that chapter, I mean, to write anything about anyone working, and I am I love writing about people at work and very often do, <laughs> but you have to know a lot about the context in which someone is working because a person who has a job does that job without thinking often. It's second nature to them. So to write about someone doing something like that I have to know enough to write knowingly about that job. So in writing about a music producer, I spent a lot of time talking to a producer and mixer. And this these conversations were probably happening in about 2006 or seven. So the music industry had really started to go into a free fall. And what was so striking talking to this person was that everything he said was permeated by a sense of before and after mm. before Napster and after Napster. And that was really compelling to me. I wasn't expecting that because again, I'm not deeply into the music industry and I never even used Napster. I mean, I dimly knew that the digital realm had harmed the music industry, but I didn't really know it firsthand. And I think it was these conversations with this guy that made me feel like a book about time, which I knew I wanted to write, very inspired by Proust in Search of Lost Time, a book about time and a book about music could be one book because the music industry became a really powerful lens through which to look at the arrival of the digital and its impacts on people's lives. Well, and music is such a great way to do time travel anyway. I mean, like I'm a total 60s music nut, you know, and it's funny how there's sort of a, there's like some people are like, well, I, I listen to this because that's that's sort of too early for me, but I'll listen to Beethoven, you know, or Mozart. Like it's sort of like the genre sort of transcends time when you're talking about music. So in a way that's, it's a apt subject for, you know, something where you're kind of going back and forth in time because music sort of has this quality that stands above time. For sure. Absolutely. And also, I think it, it because of the degree to which we are able to listen to music constantly now because of our devices, it, it becomes a time travel machine within our own lives in a huge way. I mean, if you think about it, like when we were growing up, 
you listen to the radio or you listen to a record, you certainly could not curate your own list of songs that had been meaningful at various points in your own life and listen to them whenever you wanted. So because music is is so transporting to a time and a place, especially if it's has a nostalgic quality, it we use it or I use it as a kind of personal time travel machine all the time. So, yes, I would say music and time feel very intertwined. And our current technology, I think, reminds us of that intertwinement on a daily basis. I'm a general manager of a large establishment. They pass some spies on the back and put some to the rod. But I never thought they put me in the good squad. Were you bombarded with, you know, people sending you like music examples of other songs with gaps in them and stuff like that after that book came out? I really was. And I have to tell you, I really wish I had saved some of those recommendations. I, you know, sometimes when I when I publish a book, I I've kind of exhausted a topic for myself. And so for me, I had exhausted my curiosity about songs with pauses at back in 2010 when Goon Squad came out. But In retrospect, I really wish I had sort of systematically gathered all of those suggestions um, because it was really cool that people that people made them and cared about that. And I always would listen to the songs like it was and they were so right. I mean, people came up with songs that were better than the ones I had come up with. I just wish I had been more organized about holding on to all those suggestions. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, when I saw the title, I thought, you know, the immediately the Elvis Costello song Goon Squad started going through my head. Did you ever hear from him? I did not. Um, and and I have to tell you, honestly, that song was not in my mind when I came up with that title. I, I came up with the title of Visit from the Goon Squad years before I wrote the book, believe it or not. But one one person I did hear from a little indirectly was David Bowie, which was really cool Ooh. because there's a moment where, um, you know, Lincoln uh, criticizes David Bowie for not having a longer pause in Young Americans. <laughs> and he kind of accuses him of, of being sort of chicken. I can't remember the word he uses. And Sasha, Lincoln's mother, pushes back um, and says, you know, David Bowie, that would not be a, a reason that he would not have had a longer pause. So when I was on... Um, a music program on NPR in New York with John Schaefer. It wasn't new sounds, but it's another show that he curates. He played young Americans with a longer pause so that we could hear it and see what we thought. And everyone agreed. It really was a little better with a slightly (laughs) longer pause. But anyway, um, David Bowie sent me uh, one of his CDs after that with like a it wasn't even a note. It was just like a card that he signed, which was really nice. So that suggested to me that word had reached him that there was debate about young Americans. That's hilarious. What did he send you young Americans or was it some other? No, it was a a more recent CD. All right. So all those songs that you mentioned, like young Americans and I think time of the season might have been in there. Were you actively seeking those out? You know, or or were these things that actually, you know, as a music person, you remembered, oh, yeah, there's a pause in that song. It was a combination. I was seeking them out. Um, 
And I was also just noticing as I listened and and kind of collecting songs. And then I ended up with a playlist that was just songs with pauses. Then I got, you know, I started measuring the length of pauses. <laughs> it, but there was a long period where I didn't know if I would be able to. I mean, I was obsessed with pauses in songs, but I did not know whether I would be able to actually bring that obsession into the book because it is not inherently interesting. <laughs> And actually, this is brings us full circle because I mentioned that there was a failed chapter that had Miles Ames and Alfred Hollander in it in Goon right. Squad. There was also in that chapter a an academic who was writing about pauses in rock and roll songs, and she would stop the action to lecture everyone around her about how these pauses were functioning. And it's one reason the chapter was just such a disaster. I mean. It didn't work at all. It was so boring. No one cared. But when I revisited um, the material, actually, after I had sold the book and started working on this chapter in PowerPoint, I found that PowerPoint was a much better milieu, a much better genre in which to include a person sharing, you know, quantities of information. I mean, that's what PowerPoint was made to do. So I found that it it worked much better in the context of PowerPoint than it had in a traditional narrative to have to have some illustrations about how pauses function in songs. And that gets back to another point we were discussing earlier, which is that genres only work in fiction if I'm telling a story that can't be told any other way. Right. And a story that relies on a person sharing uh, insights and lessons about how pauses function in rock and roll songs was okay in PowerPoint, but really, really didn't work in a traditional narrative. Like this academic cared a lot about these pauses in rock and roll songs, but it was boring when she said it. But for Lincoln, who in a certain way is substitute is using these these data points to express emotion. For example, there's one slide where Lincoln is trying to tell his father that he loves him. But the only way he can do it is to talk about how the pause in a certain song functions. And I diagram that in PowerPoint. So the pauses start to feel like they are serving a deeper purpose that is right. not just intellectual and not just musical. It's actually emotional. I mean, that book came out and had this great sort of afterlife. You won the Pulitzer Prize for it. Um, how did that all affect you? Well, I mean, I felt very lucky. I knew I was very lucky. And I think maybe the the fact that I was so aware of how much this was really about luck um, was because of when it happened in my career. You know, I had already written a number of books. I was in my 40s, um, well into my 40s. Um, and so I I think I understood very well that you can do everything right and keep getting better and still not have that good luck. So I, I was very aware of the fact that it I couldn't I would I should not expect that luck to continue. Um, and I'm glad about that, because I think sometimes when people have success really, really early, they naturally think, well, this is just how it is for me. But it isn't that way for everyone always ever. <laughs> so I really knew that that was the positive. The, the scary part was that because I was so aware of how much 
of all of that was luck, I felt kind of like I I didn't deserve it and cut and couldn't match it. So I did feel a little bit overwhelmed as I worked on Manhattan Beach, which was the next book I wrote after that. Um, And I really worried that I would just, you know, it would fail and I would fail and be revealed to be a charlatan. Um, But, you know, it was just a process to work through. I mean, you know, any any big event usually brings challenges and benefits and god knows having really good luck and winning a big prize brought me a lot of benefits more readers domestically more readers internationally you know people who actually cared what i would write next which is all a writer can ask for so i i'm very grateful for all of it and also grateful that it didn't come too early so that I could manage the pressures that came along with it and keep try to keep getting better, which is what we all have to do. <laughs> um, anyone working in any creative field wants to keep getting better. And I certainly do. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's an element of luck in sort of timing and people discovering something or whatever. But you keep saying luck over and over. I mean, there's also an element of it being a brilliant novel that really resonated and worked with a lot of people. When you say luck, are you saying that to sort of keep yourself humble or or do you think it's really like more of a fluky thing than maybe I would think it was? I think it is a fluky thing. I really do. I mean, First of all, winning a prize is just by definition luck because it it comes down to I mean, although it feels like an iconic, you know, anointment once it's happened, the the reason it happens is that a particular group of people at a particular time agreed on your book. Maybe you were even the compromise choice. Who knows? I've been a judge on a big prize. I understand how these things work. So that is by definition, luck. Then there's the larger thing of somehow feeling culturally relevant at a particular time, answering a certain cultural need that maybe it's not luck, but it's also not something we have any control over. (laughs) So again, it it feels like luck, even if it isn't. So I'm not just trying to be humble. I am proud of my book. Don't get me wrong. I I have really high standards and I am a total perfectionist. So I did my absolute best. I always do. But I'm vividly aware that at a different time, I could have done all that and it could have, you know, come to very little. That's just a fact. Are you happy at the end of the year when you look up and see Barack Obama's put you on his end of the year list? Insanely happy. (laughs) Insanely happy. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I don't delight in every bit of good fortune that comes along. I do. I do. I think maybe the knowledge that I don't control it makes me appreciate it all the more. I just... I couldn't be happier about those nice things that happen. They're such a joy to me. Um, And I keep trying to earn them as much as I can. Yeah, I don't think it would be, I mean, aside from everything else, the idea that like there's, you know, Barack on his armchair curled up with Candy House. like That's a nice thing to have in your head. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm not sure there's any single opinion that I care more about. Maybe there is. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, it's just a dreamlike 
accomplishment to have even had the book find him, much less that he would enjoy it. I mean, sheer joy. Does where you live make much of a difference about what you write? That's such an interesting question. I, I for me, place is I cannot overemphasize how important an element it is in my work. I mean, that it is what I start with. A sense of time and place is all I start with, really. Uh, so it matters enormously, but I'm not. And, and I love New York. New York has almost become a kind of muse for me, I would say. Um, I find the city sort of inexhaustible. I love the way its history is sort of is manifest all over the place, even as it's disappearing. Um, I love being in New York also because I since I don't write about myself or my own life, I I need the stimulation of abrading with other people on a regular basis. So I love that there's so much street life here. You know, I, I got my first car at the, in this year of my life at age 60 i had never owned a car in my life until wow. this year i raised we raised two kids in this city and we never owned a car so there's i i all of that stimulation of new york i think is is it feeds me in a really deep way all of that said the places that really matter to me, I think, are the ones that I have experienced over the course of my life. And you can see those in Candy House. I mean, there are chapters that are set in Chicago, San Francisco, um, L.A., which I don't know well, but I think it's, you know, it, it draws on that sort of California vibe of the 70s that I do know well. And and so in a way, you know, New York matters to me as one of several places that I know well and continue to draw on. And it feeds me as a creator for those reasons that I just mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of stimulation. But I think I I would be doing what I'm doing wherever I was. I, I don't think I have to be in New York to 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 write the books I'm writing. I just happen to really love it here. But I will always draw on those places that I know from earlier in my life. Chicago is a huge one. Um, and, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Just California. sort of how much of Chicago you've carried with you, because you were here when you were pretty young. Yeah, but my father lived there until he died. So right. I moved with my mother and stepfather, but I still think of myself as a Midwesterner. I mean, my my uncle is there. Um, my my sister's there. You know, I I I am very much of Chicago, but all all of my grandparents were from that region. Um, look at me as set uh, par partly in Rockford, which is where right. my mother grew up. So my kind of geographical DNA is is a lot of it arises from Illinois and that region. Does that affect the writing itself? know about the writing itself um i think it, it, it that's a good question i don't know is the answer i mean i start with time and place and that i think informs who comes along and what ends up happening but the the writing itself may be something that that i bring to all of it as a kind of that in a way um synthesizes you know, all of the reading that I've done and all of the living that I've done. Um, but I think the language part of it may come from the reading more than the living. Right. 
And is there a certain time of day or place where that's where you write and when you do it? Um, not necessarily, you know, I, I, when I'm writing original material, it's great if I can get started early, the more kind of, the more thought interference and communication interference I've had, the harder it is to sort of get into the groove. But, you know, when I, when my kids were little, it would, oh, I would have, you know, often brought them to school and done all kinds of things before I could sit down and write. Um, So I would say there are no requirements, but if I can get started early in a quiet place with some good natural light, I'm happy, but I've had to write in many other circumstances when I didn't have those things and I still could do it. I try not to be too precious about all of it. You know, I, I, you can spend a lot of time looking for the perfect conditions and that really becomes an excuse not to get started, at least for me. Um, it feels like the the number one thing I need to do is get my butt into a chair with a legal pad in my lap and a pen. And if I can just do that, <laughs> I am creating all the conditions I need to write fiction. And you're writing out longhand first. Still. Yeah. For fiction. Yes. I was, I was always told that that's the best thing to do, but then I can't read half of what I write. So I got to get better on that. Well, that not being able to read it is partly why it works, at least for me. It kind of it it nullifies that judging part or it mm. it um it recesses it and and lets the creative part take the lead. The characters in Candy House, are you done with them or do you see like, you know, maybe in 10 years kind of coming back when Chat GPT is taking over the fiction world and you know, whatever world we're living in now, you know, maybe some of those stories get extended further. I'm open to anything, but I don't feel an immediate inclination to write more about those people. Um, I think one reason is that the Candy House draws the circle a little wider than Goon Squad, which is one reason I think starting with Candy House and then reading Goon Squad might make sense as Mm -hmm. as the the best order. Um, But I can't draw the circle any wider and still have it feel unified. So I writing a returning to this world would involve taking one segment of it and and focusing on that, which I'm very open to, but it won't have the same feeling as the other two books. So I think this is a duo. And then it may be that I will return to some aspect of that world, but I, I don't think I can hold on to the totality of it any any further without it feeling repetitive. Right. And you don't know what life in say 2030 is going to feel like anyway. So, you know, that's, that's what you get to, you get to react to the world as it happens as a writer. So you're, you're open. Well, to if that. I write about it in 2030, I'll be writing about the 2040s. So we'll see. I, I imagined the 2020s and now here we are. It, it comes up fast. It does a little too fast, but uh, anyway, thank you so much. This is great talking to you. Um, I appreciate it. And uh, congrats on the paperback of the candy house. I hope uh, everyone picks it up who didn't get the hardcover and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I've just enjoyed immersing myself in the, uh, the Jennifer Egan universe. So thanks. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's a pleasure. That's all for episode 74 of Carol pop. Thanks so much to Jennifer Egan for sharing so much insight into her novels and the way she writes. The Candy House is just out in paperback from Scribner, and you should buy it at your favorite bookstore or at jenniferegan.com. Her website also offers more information about The Candy House, including a handy reading group guide, as well as her other books. 
You can follow her on Twitter at Egan Goon Squad and on Instagram at Jennifer Egan Writer. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swate, who makes sure every pause is in the right place. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Carrow at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. We promise not to spam you. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.